Hi, and welcome back to True Crime Sweden. I'm your host, Pernilla. I realized that I forgot to introduce myself in the first episode. I'm sorry about that. You can reach me via email at truecrimesweden at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Just search for True Crime Sweden. And if you like the podcast, please rate and review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe. Let's get started. This is the case of Engla Höglund and Pernilla Helgren. Pernilla was a 31-year-old woman who was found murdered in Fallen on June 4th, 2000. She had been beaten and strangled and was found naked. The case remained unsolved for eight years. And it could have been solved earlier, because it's later revealed that the police received a tip in 2006 naming the actual killer. But almost eight years after Penilla is murdered, on Saturday, April 5th, 2008, a 10-year-old girl named Engla Höglund goes missing in the small town of Schansund. Schansund is located about 45 kilometers or about 27 miles from Falun, where Penilla was found murdered eight years earlier. At the time, Nobody knew or even suspected that the two cases could be connected, but it soon turns out that they are, and the major clue to find the killer slash abductor turns out to be a couple of photos taken by a man who is out on a long walk with some friends on that same Saturday that Engla goes missing. But let's start with Penilla. Pernilla was a 31-year-old woman who was born in Falun, but now lived in Stockholm. She earlier worked as a flight attendant for several years, but she was now working as a florist in Stockholm. She was in Falun this weekend together with her 23-year-old sister to celebrate their mother's 50th birthday and to reconnect with old friends. On this particular weekend, Falukalaset took place. It's like a festival-slash-event arranged by the city, with uh, music scenes, food stands, and a lot of people everywhere. On that Saturday, June 4th, 2000, Pernilla went to two different nightclubs with her sister and some other friends. A little before 2 a.m., Pernilla wants to go home, but her sister wants to stay longer. Her sister and a male friend of her sister's tries to convince Pernilla to stay, but she's adamant. She just wants to go home. She starts to walk home alone. It's a walk that is supposed to take about 20 minutes. She walks on a fairly large street instead of taking the shorter walking path that would have saved her five to seven minutes. The police later thinks that she could have made this choice because she saw a man that was following her and wanted to stay on the bigger street. But as a woman myself, I would definitely also choose a larger street instead of saving a few minutes by using a path through a more secluded area. At 2.15am, a woman in a taxi sees a woman walking alone and a man following her about 20 yards behind. 
This sighting is thought to have been Pernilla and her murderer. Shortly thereafter, he catches up to her and attacks her. She is now only about 100 yards from her mother's house. She fights for her life and falls, or is thrown. That's not really clear. Uh, she falls over the railing of the overpass down to a walking path below. They later find one of her shoes stuck in the railing on the overpass. He runs down after her, and another struggle takes place. He takes a large rock and hits her in the head. She's now bleeding down her face. She's obviously trying to get help somehow, because she suddenly has her phone in her hand. He tries to grab it from her, and it ends out with him pushing her hand with the phone in it down on her throat, with such force that there is a big mark left there later. And right about this time we have another witness, a 16-year-old girl who is on her way home from the festivities in town. She is riding her bike on the overpass where Penilla was first attacked, so she is above them. She looks down and sees a heavy-set man sitting on top of a woman with his hands around her neck. The witness is about three to four yards above them, and the attacker has his back to her, so she doesn't see his face. She describes the attacker later to the police as a heavyset man with a large belly. He has a thin hair and is partly bald. He is wearing a jeans jacket with a patch or something on the back. She also notices that he has a large double chin. I guess she, she must have seen him from the side or something. The 16-year-old witness doesn't have a phone. Remember, this is 17 years ago. So she continues home. It's only like a minute bike ride from her house. When she gets home, her mom is awake, but her father is sleeping. She tells her mom what she saw, but her mom just tells her not to worry. At the same time, Pernilla is struggling for her life, only 50 yards away. But the girl cannot let it go. So she goes online and starts talking to a friend and tells her what has happened. The friend comes over after a little while and the two girls go back to the place of the attack to investigate. They find a lot of clothing laying around and they realize that something awful must have happened. They call another friend whose father is a police officer, and he sees the seriousness in what the girls are saying right away. A squad car is called, and they also bring a search dog with them. Pernilla is found shortly after. It's been about two hours since the attack took place. He has been dragged into a wooded area nearby. She's naked, except for one sock that's still hanging on. She is placed in a cross-like position with both her arms straight out from her body. They find her purse a few yards away, and from the purse her wallet, phone and calendar is missing. Later, after the autopsy and the investigation of the crime scene, they cannot find any signs of her being raped. 
There is no semen found anywhere, not on her, not on her clothes, and not on the scene of the crime. There aren't any indications on her that suggest that she has been sexually assaulted at all. But due to her being stripped naked, the crime committed is definitely sexually motivated. This tells me that she probably put up such a fight that he didn't get to rape her. It's impossible to even think about how terrified she must have been in the last minutes of her life. On the following Monday, June 6, 2000, another woman contacts the police and tells them about a man who flashed her in a tunnel near the Tiscan parking lot. This took place at 11.30, the same night Pernilla was murdered, and the location of the assault is close by to the street that Pernilla walked on, so the police thinks that the two incidents are connected. About a week after Pernilla's murder, a 46-year-old man, father of three, is arrested. His girlfriend turned him in. He has previously been convicted of sexual violent crimes. On the Saturday that Pernilla was murdered, he was out, and he came home late with his clothes messed up and he also had blood on him. He denies having anything to do with it, and the 16-year-old witness cannot identify the perpetrator in the lineup, but the police keeps him in custody anyway. But when the DNA results come back negative, he is released in September, after almost three months in custody. The DNA they are comparing to is some found on her body, and some found on the waistband on the back of her pants, like if somebody pulled them off of her. In the end of November, the National Homicide Commission gets involved in the case, and now about 25 people are working full-time with the investigation. The reason why the Homicide Commission doesn't get involved earlier is because they were all busy with the serial rapist that is active in Umeå in the northern parts of Sweden. He is called Hagamannen, or the Hagaman, due to the area that he was active in. I might cover that case in the future, it's quite interesting and quite scary. And now, with some more resources on the case, they start looking into people who might be interesting. They make a list of people who are convicted for similar crimes. The list contains of uh, 1,213 people. It's later revealed that the killer's name is on the 21st, 21st place when the list is sorted after relevance. To be able to work with this list, they divide it into counties, where we have Dalarna County, where Fallen is located, and Gävleborg County, which is the neighboring county. They also remove those who are in prison at the time of the murder, and those who doesn't at all fit into the description due to age, skin color, and so on. The list for Dalarna comes down to 26 names, and the list for Gävleborg consists of 38 names. But when the National Homicide Commission leaves Fallen in March of 2001, the police in Fallen is left to continue what they have started. 
The list made for Dalarnas county is handled, but the list for Gävleborgs county gets put in a pile and nobody looks into the people on that list. Later, when the true identity of Pernilla's killer is revealed, his name is not on that list. It should have been, and an investigation is started to see if somebody removed it just to cover up their mistake. The police in Falun focuses on the wrong things. Instead of looking into the persons on the list, they focus on DNA testing half the male population in town. No, not really, but they conduct almost 800 DNA tests and comes, of course, back with zero hits. You cannot really claim that you're understaffed when you find the time to do that. Your focus is just on the wrong things. But I also want to defend the police in Falun. They are not at all used to handling cases of this size and should have gotten help sooner and for a longer period of time. This case is actually the second largest case in Swedish history. The largest case is of course the shooting of our Prime Minister Olof Palme in February of 1986. That case is still unsolved. The witness in the taxi describes the man she saw as a typical truck driver. So police focuses extra on people who works as truck drivers. In November of 2006, a German truck driver is arrested in the German town of Köln. He has been spotted on the surveillance camera on a truck stop in Spain, and a short distance away a woman is found raped and strangled. This man is named Volker Eckert, and he is 47 years old and it's later revealed that he might be responsible for over 50 women's lives all over Europe. In his truck, they found Polaroid pictures of women with rope around their necks. They also find chunks of hair and handwritten descriptions of several murders. Volker Eckert confesses right away and seems grateful that he was finally caught. He has been murdering women his entire life, he explains and it all started when he was 14 years old. The police suspects that he committed about 50 murders, and he explains that he became a truck driver just to be able to continue killing without being connected to the different women or the different towns. Eckert is born in the former East Germany in 1959, and as a 13-year-old he starts to admire the hair of one of the girls in his class. He tells the police that he is afraid that she might reject him, so he decides to kill her instead. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And when he's 14 years old, he kills her. She is found with a rope around her neck, and the rope is attached to a door handle. And the police consider, consider it to be a suicide. Volker Eckert is sentenced to prison twice in the former East Germany. But when the Berlin Wall falls in 1989, he moves out west and never returns again. In 1999, he gets his trucker license and starts working all over Europe. He confesses to only six murders before he committed suicide by hanging in his cell. The police in Falun follows the Eckert case closely, thinking that he might have been in Sweden at the time of Pernilla's murder, 
And about the same time, on November 27, 2006, to be more exact, a tip comes in to the police through the tip line, naming Pernilla's killer. The tip is handled very poorly. The officer receiving the tip fails to add his own name to the report, so no follow-up questions can be made. Was the tipster a man or a woman? Did he or she sound reliable? And so on. They can also see that someone made a search for the killer's name the same day that the tip came in. That search showed that uh, he lived 50 kilometers or about 30 miles from Falun. He was earlier convicted of rape, sexual assault, exposure, and he's also a truck driver. And despite of all that, the officer receiving the tip deems it not relevant. About a year later, another tip comes in, again naming Pernilla's true killer, but nothing is done. The police is then focusing, focusing on a truck driver from the Netherlands. In 2007, extra resources is brought in uh, to go through all the tips from the tip line. The police in Falun sends a request to the police in Javladala County to get the DNA sample from the person who is later proven to be Pernilla's killer. The request is sent on February 27, 2008. But it isn't prioritized by the Javleboy police. The police in Falun doesn't follow up or give any indications to Javleboy that it's urgent. If it would have been done, we would not have to talk about the next horrible crime that this man commits. And a beautiful ten-year-old girl named Engla would still be alive. And today, she would have been nineteen, with probably a long happy life in front of her. But he had other plans. Let's talk about Engla. Engla Höglund is born in the small town of Stjernsund on March 5th, 1998. She has a sister who is two years older named Sol, and her mother's name is Karina. Engla means angel, and her sister's name Sol translates to son. Engla's father leaves the family about the same time that Engla is born. He moves back to Spain. Karina raises the girls by herself, but in 2006 she moves in with Torbjörn, who becomes like a father to the girls. Engla is like any other ten-year-old girl. She loves to dress up, she loves to sing, and her dream is to become a famous singer. She is close with her sister, they are only two years apart and they have a lot of common friends. Of course, they fight every now and then, but that kinds of going with having a sibling. On Saturday 5th, 2008, exactly one month after her 10th birthday, Engla wakes up in her home at about 9. It's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, and you can really feel the spring in the air. After finishing breakfast, a friend of Engla's calls and asks if she wants to meet them and play some soccer on the soccer field in town. 
she gets ready and her mom drives her down there to meet the other kids and to dr she drops her off at about 10.15 a.m. Engla has her own mobile phone, a pink one. It's the kind that you prepay. And her mom had tried the day before to refill her account, but due to some technical errors she wasn't able to. They agree that Engla should walk over to Friedhem across the street if she needs to call her mom. Friedhem is kind of a community center which Engla's mom's Karina owns and runs. Karina gives her 50 kroner, that's about 6 US dollars, to buy something to eat if she feels like it. If you have a prepaid phone without money on it, you can still receive calls, and Karina calls a couple of times to check on Engla uh, if she wants to get picked up or something. But Engla is having a great time, and she doesn't want to go home quite yet. But at about 1.30pm, Engla calls her mom and asks her if she can ride her bike home. The bike had been stored at Friedhem over the winter, and Engla wants to bring it home. Karina tells her no. She doesn't have her helmet and she hasn't ridden her bike since that fall. But Engla begs her mom to let her ride the bike home and she finally gives in. They agree that Karina is going to call Engla every 10 minutes on the ride home so that she can pick her up if something happens or if Engla gets too tired or something. It's a 4 kilometer long ride or 2.8 miles. Karina calls her as promised, and the last time she speaks to her, Engla says that she's by the big fields by the lake, and Karina makes a calculation in her head that it would take about 20 minutes for Engla to get home from where she was. She decides not to call again, give Engla the feeling that she trusts her. Later, Karina realizes that it only takes about 10 to 15 minutes to bike that distance, and those minutes could have made all the difference. They live in a very remote area, a few hundred yards from the same road Engla is riding her bike on. About 10 minutes after she last called Engla, the dog starts to bark, and Karina and her husband thinks that they heard a car, but they cannot see one. After about five more minutes, Karina starts to look out the window trying to see if Engla is coming up the road, but she sees nothing. When tw 25 minutes has passed since she last called, she calls up Engla again, but this time she doesn't get an answer. She keeps calling and calling, and she tells her husband to stay at home if she comes home, and she jumps in the car to go search for Engla. She drives the same roads as Engla should have taken. She goes all the way down to Schamsund and the community center. Then she goes back and over to the next little village where some of Engla's friends live. Maybe she went there. Nobody has seen her. Panic starts to set in. She drives back slowly, looking in the ditches. Maybe Engla fell and is hurt. She sees some people who she knows who is out for a walk, 
and they tell her they saw Engla, and she turned on to the road leading up to her house a little while ago. She continues to drive towards their house, and when she's about 200 yards from her home, she sees Engla's bike. The bike is laying about five yards into the woods. It looks like it's been placed there. She calls Torbjörn, her husband, and asks him to come down. They start to walk around the area, thinking that she maybe walked up on a small trail that is close by. She wanted to do this, but wasn't allowed to, allowed to go by herself. After a little while, they see some fresh tire tracks. It looks like a car has sped away. They then call the police. The police tells them to stay where they are and not to touch anything. A few minutes later, the police calls back. They realize that it was serious right away. And they tell them that help is on the way and that they're bringing in helicopters and dogs. I cannot even begin to imagine the panic and the fear that Engla's mother and family goes through right there and then. I've had a moment in my life where I came close to the same feeling for about 10 minutes, and it was horrifying. If you're not interested in this, skip ahead a couple of minutes, but this is what happened. It was in the beginning of April, on a Sunday. We had had a small birthday party for my daughters. They turned 5 and 8. They are born on April 1st and April 2nd, so we celebrate them together most of the time. After the guests had left, I told the girls to go play outside. The weather was warm, it was wonderful. My five-year-old gets out first. She's going to ride her bike. We live on a dead-end street and she has strict rules on where she can ride her bike and it's about 50 yards up the street and 50 yards down the street. So I felt safe. I start to tend to the dishes, and about three or four minutes after my five-year-old went out, her eight-year-old sister also goes outside. The previous week, all the parents were contacted by the school, because there had been two incidents where a man in a car had tried to grab a kid. The kids could no longer walk home from school by themselves. Everyone had to be picked up inside of the school. We were kind of freaked out, but it didn't cross my mind that Sunday when I let the girls out to play. About a minute or two after my eight-year-old went outside, she comes in and says that she can't find her sister. I go outside and I start calling for her. It's a small street and it's only been a couple of minutes. I run back and forth a little bit, yelling on the top of my lungs, but she's nowhere. A neighbor comes out and asks what's happening, and uh, I ask her to watch my eight-year-old, and I get in the car, I roll down the windows, and I drive further up our street, still calling out for her. After about five or ten minutes, I see balloons on one of her kindergarten friend's house. I run into the house, and I see my daughter's bike lying behind their car. That's why I couldn't see it from the road. She is, of course, there. I start crying, and the poor mother of the friend tells me that she did ask my daughter if I knew that she 
she went to their house and my daughter said yes. But the panic that I felt for those minutes and the pictures that popped into my head. I get chills even remembering this so many years later. And then imagine an English mom's panic and fear for hours and days. I so feel for this family. At first, the police focus on Engla's father. Karina, Engla's mother, is convinced that he has nothing to do with it. He has almost no con contact with the girls, but of course, the police needs to investigate this anyway. The same night, people from around comes in to help with the search. They gather at the school. One man comes in with a digital camera. His name is Thomas Langton, and the pictures that he shows to the police is very interesting. That same afternoon, Thomas Langton, his wife and another couple uh, that they were visiting for the weekend, they went for a walk in the beautiful spring weather. Thomas, who was from out of town, just bought a new camera and he was taking a lot of pictures. When they walked on that larger road and a girl comes riding her bike, he takes pictures of her. The reason for doing this is that he wants to tr try out his new camera and how it functions on a moving object, you know, to take several pictures in a row. Uh, and about f 50 seconds after the girl passes, a red sob is approaching them. Uh, and he again takes several pictures of the car. And after a couple of minute, more minutes, a gray car comes along and he also takes photographs of that car. So he took a picture of Engla riding her bike and 50 seconds later, he took a picture of her soon-to-be killer. You can clearly read out the license plate on the car and you can also see the driver. The search continues with a large search party. They go through closed summer houses, searches in wells, and everywhere thinkable. On Sunday night, the police moves their headquarters from school to the community center that Engla's mother runs. The police is divided into two groups, one search group and one crime group. The search group focuses on finding her, organizing the large amount of people who comes in to help and going through tips and observations. The other group focuses on the crime. They conduct interviews, look into the family's past. They start looking into known sex offenders in the area. It's probably a smart thing to divide the police's resources in this way, but it also leads to a huge mistake. On Monday, one and a half day after her disappearance, a police officer from the search group calls the owner of the Red Saab at 10.44 a.m. He just wants to ask the driver if he made any observations on that day. But what he really does is to tip off the murderer 
that they have proof that he was close to the scene of the crime. And he also gives him time to get rid of any evidence. Later that afternoon, the crime group realizes that the owner of the Red Saab has a criminal record and is convicted of rape, sexual assault, and sexual exposure. They arrest him that same afternoon in the southern parts of Sweden in his truck. I'm now going to list some of the crimes he has been convicted for before this. October 1994, assault and attempt to rape. He received one year and ten months in prison. November 1995, assault. And yes, due to the early release, he was able to do this only one year and one month after being convicted to one year and ten months in prison. He is now sentenced to six months in prison. March 1998, sexual force, four months in prison. Year 2000, sexual misconduct. He showed his penis for a woman on a running trail. March 2004, unlawfully handling of alcohol. He bought alcohol for some kids. In November 2004, he is caught stealing girls' underwear in a locker room at Rättvikskolan. It's a school in Rättvik. It's about 50 kilometers or 30 miles north of Falun. And a little side note here. That is the same middle school that I went to. I've been in that locker room plenty of times. And another side note. When uh, he was young, he got the nickname Trosrunkaren, which translates to the panty jerker or something like that. You can probably figure out what it means. I also want to mention that I have some inside information on the first attack he was convicted for in 1994. Uh, that was assault and attempt to rape. I was told by a close friend of the victim what happened that night. The victim was at a nightclub slash restaurant. The restaurant part was closed for the night, but still connected to the nightclub, if you get the picture. She needed to use the restrooms, and as always, there was a long line for the ladies' room. And she knew there were other restrooms in the restaurant part, so she walked through the dark restaurant and used the restrooms there. When she's done and opens the door, she's punched in the face. She falls down, and the man tries to rip off her clothes. Lucky for her, one of her male friends saw that the man was following her, so he was close behind and he was able to stop the attack. Back to the case. After the suspect has been arrested, they start to question him. He denies having anything to do with the missing girl. He denies he ever saw her on the bike that day. When he is transferred back to the police in Falun, and when he arrives, the officers immediately sees a resemblance to the sketch made after the murder of Panela eight years earlier. So when they send the suspect's DNA for testing, they also ask them to compare it to the murder of Panela. 
The police keep interrogating him throughout the week. They know how the following connect him, him, him to the crime. His tires match the tire tracks on the crime scene. They found blood in his back seat uh, of his car and also in his trunk. They also found 56 pornographic pictures of children in his computer. And they have the picture placing him at the scene of the crime. That same Friday, April 11th, six days after Engler went missing, they get the call telling them that there's a match in the Pernella case. The police now have proof that the man in front of them killed Pernilla eight years ago. That gives them an advantage in the interrogation room. But the focus still remains on finding out what happened to Engla. Maybe she's still alive. They keep pushing him and after two days on Sunday, April 13th, in the afternoon, he confesses to the murder of Pernilla eight years earlier. And a little later, he finally reveals that he also killed Engla. She was killed in the same spot where she went missing, only 10 to 15 minutes after he grabbed her. He also agrees to take them to the location of her remains. The media is waiting patiently outside the police office, and the police doesn't want the media to tag along for this. So they use an unmarked police car and puts an officer in the back of the car with a blanket over his head, posing as the suspect. This works like a charm, and the press follows that car. Five minutes later, they can leave with the real suspect without being followed. He takes them to a remote area in the woods. And there, on the gravel road, her remains is found. She's been badly burned and they need dental records to identify her. He later admits that he raped her right there when he grabbed her about 200 yards from where her mother was standing looking out the window. I'm not going to go into any details, but the attack and the rape was brutal. There is blood in the car and her jaw had been broken. He also tells the police that he strangled her and moved her body to the trunk. He gets into the car to leave, but before he even starts driving, he hears a phone ringing from the trunk. He finds the phone in, her, in the pocket of her coat, and he looks at the display. It says, Mom. He lets it ring out, and then he turns the phone off. I wonder what goes through his mind at this time. He later claims that he threw the phone uh, into the woods from his car, but the phone has never been recovered. After driving off with Engla's dead body in the trunk of his car, he drives home. He says that he drove into his garage and opened the trunk to make sure that she was dead. After that, he goes into his apartment, and he takes a shower, and he has a cup of coffee. He then goes back out. He drives to a local gas station and runs his car through the car wash. Engla is still in his trunk. 
He fills up the car and also buys some extra gasoline to bring with him. Then he goes to the local pizza place. He orders a pizza and a soda. He's acting normal, according to the owner of the place. While he eats his pizza, his car is parked outside. Engma is still in the trunk. After eating, he leaves his hometown of Torsåker and drives for about 45 minutes. He drives onto a gravel road in the woods. There he takes her body out of the car, then moves his car a little further away. He then pours gasoline over her body and lights it on fire. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the perpetrator. I just don't think he's worthy of the attention. But I'm going to give you a short summary. His name is Anders Eklund. He's born in 1965. That makes him 34 when he killed Pernilla and 42 when he killed Engla. His upbringing was somewhat normal, but he had an uncle who introduced him to porn when he was only 11 years old. When he was 13, the same uncle brought him to a strip club. Probably not a good start for a sick mind. The interviews that I've seen with him from the interrogation room shows a man who seems to have a lower IQ than average. He seems slow somehow. He also seems to lack the ability to feel empathy. And as the investigation shows, he has no impulse control and explodes into rage quite easily. He claims not to be a pedophile, but I'm convinced that he is. He prefers women with small or no breasts, due to his own statements. His apartment is full of pornographic magazines, a lot of pornographic movies. Thirteen of those pornographic movies contain people sexually abusing animals. He also had several used women's underwear and child pornography on his computer. I think that's enough. Let's just say he's not a very pleasant person. A month after Engla is found, it's time for a last goodbye. Engla's mom contacts the media and the funeral is broadcast on national TV. This gets criticized hard by many people, but I understand and I support Karina's way of reasoning. This is what she said, quote, If the media can report on all the gruesome details of the crime, all the darkness and sorrow, then people should be able to see what happens after that. There is a funeral, and that funeral is to honor Ingla and the person that she was. End quote. Ingla's sister Sol and one of Engla's best friends, Isabel, sang a song during the funeral. The girls are only 12 at the time. Let's listen to that beautiful song. Ni ska få höra My Heart Will Go On. Englas syster Sol och Englas vän 
Isabel. Varsågoda. It's so terribly sad that Engla had to be the next victim of this man. He could have and should have been stopped much earlier. But I think that some higher power intervened and made sure that those pictures were taken that day so that this man could finally be stopped. Anders Eklund was convicted to life in prison. In Sweden, life in prison almost always means 20 to 25 years. And next year, in 2018, he can apply to have his sentence set for a specific amount of years. But I hope that they will deny him that. I truly think that this man is going to stay in prison for life. At least I hope so. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to subscribe that, so that you don't miss the next episode. You can reach me at truecrimesweden at gmail.com and I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for True Crime Sweden.
And now to the episode's little fun fact about Sweden. When you turn 18 in Sweden, you are considered an adult. You can drink in bars when you're 18, but you have to be 20 to buy alcohol to bring home. Alcohol is only sold in a special store. It's called Systembolaget, and it's only open Monday through Saturday. Well, that's it for today. I hope to see you next time. Goodbye. Hey, though.